This is Craig Brown, and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used for preaching here at the First Free Methodist Church of Seattle, or anyone who's looking to dive deeper into the Bible. Today's passage is from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. It'll be the basis of the sermon here at the First Free Methodist Church on Pentecost Sunday, May 28, 2023. It's the first in a series of messages that'll carry us through the month of June called Renew, about how we are called to build a spirit-centered life. Well, this story does certainly open with the Holy Spirit. In the first four verses of Acts chapter 2, we read about a Pentecostal Pentecost. Now, the word Pentecost literally means 50 days, and it marks the 50th day since Jesus' resurrection. The word Pentecost is a, a Greek word that's based on the, uh, the Jewish festival of weeks. In other words, if you were in a Greek-speaking world and you wanted to talk about the Jewish festival of weeks, you would call it Pentecost. Within the Jewish community, they, of course, would call it the Festival of the Weeks, which is the uh, a week of weeks, if you would imagine. So if a week has seven days, then that means it's a festival marking seven weeks. It's been seven weeks since the Passover began. And so this kind of marks the end of that particular season in the life of the Jewish community. And it also marks the, the date often of the spring harvest time. Now, some have drawn parallels between uh, this festival of weeks and Pentecost as uh, there's a, a point in Jewish history that came much later in which the festival of weeks is a way in which uh, uh, the Jewish community commemorates Moses' reception of the law. And so parallels are often drawn that this, this, uh, this observance of the festival of the weeks marks the Jewish reception of the law and the Christian reception of the Holy Spirit. Um, those conclusions may not be well-based because that connection with the law of Moses being given didn't come until a little bit after the period of the New Testament. Now, Luke, who's the writer of the book of Acts, states literally, when the day of Pentecost was fulfilled. So notice the verb tense there. It doesn't say on the day of Pentecost. It says when the day of Pentecost was fulfilled. So the tense here is implying that this Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples and the early Christian believers, that that was the fulfillment of Pentecost. So in some ways, separating Pentecost from Easter is not very helpful. Luke really sees these 50 days as having a beginning at Easter, a middle with Jesus's resurrection appearances leading to his ascension, and an end, which is at the day of Pentecost. This is the beginning of the church's missionary efforts. The text tells us that they were together in one place, and in this case, they happened to be together in Jerusalem. They could be in the same upper room. They celebrated the Passover meal with Jesus on that Thursday night before his betrayal, crucifixion, and death, or it could be some other room that potentially is near the temple. But there are certainly signs of the times. There's signs going on in and around them as this festival of weeks is beginning in the city of Jerusalem. As the Holy Spirit then comes upon 
all of these followers of Jesus who have gathered together, they hear a noise like the sound of a rushing wind. Uh, Luke, especially in this episode and in others, he likes to use a literary technique called simile, and that is the use of the word like, that this was like this or like that. And so what Luke describes here is a noise like the sound of a rushing wind that happened. That doesn't mean it was the sound of a rushing wind. It was like it. Now, it's important to remember that in uh, Greek, that the word for wind and spirit uh, are the same word. So uh, it's, it's kind of a little bit of a play on words here when the spirit comes on them. Literally, the wind comes on them, if you will. And it says that it filled the house where they were sitting. Now, we're not certain of the location. As I mentioned, it could have been the upper room where they celebrated the Passover meal. It could be someplace else. We don't know. But in all likelihood, it had some sort of proximity to the Jewish temple because there were those at the temple who could hear what was going on in this room where the disciples were. Acts 2 then tells us that tongues like fire appeared. So, There is a way in which there was this manifestation, not in the speaking of tongues. That's not what this is saying. It's that tongues of fire, like the the lapping, if you will, of different flames uh, or flame that appeared in their midst. It was in one place at first, and then it went to many. In other words, it was distributed amongst all those who were there. It's a symbolic, many ways, of their speech in terms of what they were able to say in a minute, but it begins with this presence of the fire that appeared at least as one at first and then divided to all of the different people who had gathered together. And it says that they were filled with the Spirit. Remember, that word for breath or spirit is the same word in Greek, panuma. Now, filling is often described in the scripture. It talks about throughout Jewish scripture that there were different people at times to times who were filled with the Holy Spirit. But this time is a bit different in that the Holy Spirit is, is uh, residential. In other words, the, the Spirit is going to take up uh, residence within uh, each of the individual believers and as part of the Christian community. We'll talk more about that in a moment, but at least on this occasion, it says, then they, then they spoke with different tongues. So it's important that when we read the story, we not conflate the tongues like fire that appeared above them versus their capacity to speak with different tongues. The Spirit was giving them utterance. So the speech that they gave is not the fire that was upon them. It was ecstatic, perhaps, or maybe a language, or maybe just their confu- the people who heard it understood it in their own language. But the scene here is in many ways what's important. It's public and it's chaotic. It's described as a eruption of sorts, like almost an interruption in what's going on, that while uh, Jewish pilgrims are praying in the temple in Jerusalem, this event happens. And what Jesus had promised to be as a part of the Easter story has now taken place. That opens up a, a key passageway for us here, that the church is a body filled with the Spirit, just like Jesus. The coming of the Spirit upon the apostles and those gathered is important in our theology. Jesus, of course, is both human and divine. In other words, he's one person with two natures. 
This uh, arrangement in theological terms is called the hypostatic union. In other words, Jesus is human and divine at the same time, two natures in one person. And now the church itself, the gathered community of Christians on that first Pentecost day, they now are human and divine. They have their human body together, and that is now filled with the Spirit. So in this sense, we are literally the body of Christ, as the Apostle Paul would describe us, that as Jesus himself may be gone from our midst in his ascension, we are now the body of Christ in the world filled with his spirit. So the church as a community is now the embodiment of Jesus's very presence in the world. Nowhere in the New Testament is an individual believer described as a container of the Holy Spirit. It's always in the plural, where Paul writes in his letters, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, that he doesn't use the singular pronoun for you there, the, for you, he uses the plural version of the second person pronoun, you, like y'all. It's a plural pronoun. Jesus is with them in every way. Jesus is in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's something that the church must always remember, that it is a body filled with the Spirit, just like Jesus. As the story continues to unfold, we read in verses 5 to 13 the the reaction of those in Jerusalem who saw and heard what was going on. Now, Jerusalem was heavily, heavily trafficked by pilgrims for this festival of weeks. There are actually more Jewish pilgrims in the city of Jerusalem than there are at Passover. One of the primary reasons why this was the case is that the weather was better. Remember, Jerusalem is located in the mountains. And so uh, during the, you know, the late days of March, early April, it can still be quite cold there. But by the time we move into the month of May, we're deep into the heart of spring, weather was better, more pilgrims would oftentimes come to Jerusalem. Now, the Jews who had been scattered abroad all over the ancient world had now come in a pilgrimage back to Jerusalem for this festival. So the city is packed with people who are from out of town and from all over the ancient world. And it's nine o'clock in the morning when this takes place. We'll learn that later in the story, but you need to know now this is 9 a.m. in the morning. They're here for the festival of weeks and nine o'clock in the morning is the time for morning prayer as part of the festival that's going on. So when this event happens in this room, wherever the disciples were located, at the same time, there is an hour of prayer that's happening in the temple as part of the regular observance of the festival of weeks. So while they're praying in the temple, they hear all of the commotion in the room where the disciples are. Again, this is a public act. It's not a private one. And they act along with the the proclamation, and it spurs a response from them. And what I mean is that the question that's asked is, what must we do later? And, And it's heard ultimately by everybody around so that What I'm getting at is that this is a public act. This didn't happen quietly and discreetly in a room. This is something that people around the situation heard and saw whether they were participating in the events in that room or not. Their confusion is amplified, at least from the crowd standpoint, of hearing the sound of people speaking in their own native tongue. The people are, says that they're bewildered, they're amazed, they're astonished. These are words that Luke uses to describe the crowd. And 
Luke goes kind of over the top to describe their reaction. Now, their initial response was suspicion and cynicism. People in the crowd say, are these not Galileans? In other words, aren't these people from, you know, a, a known region that have an accent when they speak? So how is it that these Galileans, who are you know, perhaps regarded as not the most intelligent or well-educated people, able to speak in languages that are not their own? So it's important to note why they are confused. They're not just they're not just confused by the event, but they're confused by who is there. Uh, these Galileans are nobodies. And Luke then describes all the places that the Jews who were there, where they hail from. So he talks about the diaspora or everywhere in which the Jews have come. He names off all of these communities and cities and places where they have come from. And so in this very public and open setting, they hear the events that have just gone on in this room. But since it lacks any context or meaning, they simply don't understand it. Many of these Jews who are in the city from around the ancient world, they have not been in the city during the time of Jesus's final week. They were not there to see the crucifixion. They were not there to even uh, be witnesses of resurrection. So it's, it's interesting that the Jewish community that's there that's wondering about what's going on in this room with these disciples, they have no context about what's going on. So we begin to see a pattern emerge in Luke, and we've seen it in his gospel. We'll see it in the book of Acts, that oftentimes there's an action first and the explanation afterwards. There's rarely a reversal. There are times, but there's rarely a reversal where there's this explanation or teaching that comes first, and then the action occurs. So in this case, no one comes along and says, well, today's the day of Pentecost, and we know the Holy Spirit's going to come, and here's what that means, and then they finish, and then the Holy Spirit comes. It's the exact opposite. The Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples. It's very public, open, a lot of commotion and chaos. Then, afterwards, Peter explains what has happened. Luke goes on to talk about how the people were amazed and perplexed. It said, some of them said, what does this mean? Others said they are full of sweet wine. Even with this miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit in a visible and auditory sort of way, there is still disbelief. Now, oftentimes, sometimes people describe this event of Pentecost as being like a reversal of the Tower of Babel that we read about in Genesis chapter 11. It seems like those lines could be easily drawn, that you know people were divided by language in Genesis 11, and here they are in Acts 2, united under language. But it's strange that Luke makes no reference or allusion to it at all. Luke never makes mention of the corollary between this event on Pentecost and the confounding of languages that we read in Genesis 11. There is a key passageway here for us, and it's this, is that God's powerful movement still invites a human choice. There are times we wish for God to do something just a little bit more direct, a little clearer, a little bit more manifest. God has. And what we learn even in Acts chapter 2 is even when God does do these things that are clear and unmistakably powerful movements of the Spirit, suspicion and denial persist. Even today, when the church may not even display the kinds of actions described here in Acts chapter 2. 
humans respond with the same. So it's, it's in some ways, it's not a matter of getting the church to look and act more Pentecostal or miraculous and somehow that'll convince people. It didn't convince people at that particular moment until Peter was able to preach about it. What God's work here is to do is to invite choice, to beckon it, to point to the right choice, but never choosing it for us. God's public act of outpouring the Spirit invites everyone to reconsider who they are and who God is. Remember what they asked, the crowd, when they heard this event. How can this be? In other words, these are a bunch of Galileans. You see, it's a question of method. It's a question of means. It's a question of agency. The question they don't ask is, what does this mean? Which is a much more substantial question because that's a question of wonder. It's a question of invitation, of motion, of dynamism. What does this mean is not what they're asking. How can this be is where they're stuck. We finally turn to the end of the story in verses 14 to 21 where we begin to hear from Peter, who now is going to explain what they have seen. As with all the actions of God, they do require an explanation. As a matter of fact, if you look at the book of Acts as a whole, from its beginning to an end, over one-third of the book of Acts contains speeches and preaching. The same Peter, who denied Jesus three times, and who was ultimately restored by Jesus to feed my sheep, according to John 21, now begins to speak. And he says, know this and pay attention. He invites the crowd and he commands authority. In many ways, the Peter that appears to us in Acts chapter 2 is not like any Peter we've ever seen before. It's a witness to the power of the day of Pentecost at work in his life. He goes on to say, that which was spoken by Joel, the prophet, notice he doesn't say Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel when he reaches back into the rabbinic tradition of Judaism and its scripture. He reaches not to Genesis, he reaches to Joel. So in some ways, this is not necessarily about a global reconciliation as we'd like it to be according to Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel. No, this is, this is about a global mission, a global mission that's given to the disciples. They're accused of being drunk. And Peter goes on to say, but it, it, we're not drunk. It's only the third hour of the day. This is how we know it's nine o'clock in the morning when he says it's the third hour of the day. And then he goes on to say that these are the last days, the last days described by the prophets when God would pour out the spirit on all flesh and there would be signs and wonders and etc. So there's this evangelistic invitation, if you will. A Pentecost is an evangelistic invitation while the Spirit is poured out on the church for the sake of the church's work, it also is a witness within the world that beckons people to call on the name of the Lord as Peter encourages them. And this opens a key passageway for us. The life of the church is never private or secret. It is public and it is open. Part of the tradition that I'm in, the free Methodist tradition, has been from its beginning based on the fact that uh, people within communities in the world need to be able to worship freely. In other words, when there was a pew tax charged in the 19th century for those that would want to come into Methodist places of worship, the free Methodists opposed that. The free Methodists opposed slavery fiercely. 
participated in the early days of the Underground Railroad with a tremendous amount of energy. Well, one of the other things that free Methodists have held as part of their tradition is that we reject the value of secret societies. You know, those gatherings where there are secret rituals or secret oaths. Free Methodists from our beginning have uh, really uh, encouraged people to not participate in those secret types of gatherings. Because you see, the mission of the church is a mission. It's, but the church by its very nature is public and external. And we're to engage in local and global mission. Peter speaks to the crowd to explain. He doesn't speak to the disciples. He doesn't speak to some of the committed followers of Jesus. He speaks to the crowd about what they're seeing and what they're hearing. There's no secrecy here. As we'll find in Acts, the mission of the church is proclaiming God's grace everywhere. One of my first professors I had going to school was a man named Dr. Harold Dollar when I went to Biola University, and, and he said that, friends, the book of Acts is how the universal gospel becomes universal in its application. Always appreciated what Dr. Dollar said then, that this is a publicly held thing. And so the question we might ask on this day of Pentecost is how do we take what we do inside the church and help it to more and more be done outside of the church, publicly, and in the world. If you have comments or reflections this week, I invite you to visit my website, revcraig.com. Click on News in the upper right-hand corner, and you'll see a drop-down menu with podcasts on it. If you click on Podcasts, you can click on this episode, and you can leave a comment. I'd love to hear from you. I'd also encourage you to visit our church's website, ffmc.org, to learn more about free Methodism and how you can connect with our community here in Seattle. For now, I bid you all grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon next time.